Sure. Well, I was that seven-year-old who knew that she wanted to be a lawyer. I have changed the what kind of lawyer over the last 30 years. <laughs> but when I was seven and in the second grade, I had a wonderful discussion with my second grade teacher about whether or not she could see air. She said that air was clear uh -huh. and that we could not see air. So we had a discussion and a debate and she had the class to vote and the class voted with me that they could actually see air. I actually said, well, the window is clear and you can see the window. And so over the years, I've been a hearing officer, judicial hearing officer, hearing cases. I have practiced in a small law firm. I have worked on Capitol Hill. I've, of course, taught law school, been a law school administrator, been a consultant. So I haven't actually done what I thought I would do at age seven, uh -huh. but age seven was when I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> was it the was it the um, the success with a jury of your peers that really drew you <laughs> forward with it? You were like, hey, I have this power. <laughs> I think then at seven it was because I like to talk, and if I could convince other people to agree with me, then hey, I can do this for a living. The interesting thing was though it was the. 70s and girls did not aspire to be attorneys at that time uh -huh. and i remember my girl scout troop leader asking us what career we wanted and i remember her husband was an attorney mm -hmm. and when i said that i wanted to be a lawyer she said you can be a court reporter <laughs> which was very interesting and I paused and didn't quite understand then uh -huh. what I now know in my adult world which yeah. was the female appropriate career for you is court reporter and she said very kindly and you know they get to be in the courtroom all of the time with the attorneys so just an, just an interesting tidbit right does that coming from a from a you know, a, a working perspective on on actually, you know, educating and sending lawyers out into the world then, does that kind of help to, to feed the fire of, well, when I was at a point where I was aspiring for for this, uh, you know, for this profession that I was told, well, you're, here's how you fit in. Now you get to tell people, fit in however you want to. Absolutely. And that's actually one of the reasons why I chose SIU School of Law. So mm -hmm. when I decided that I wanted to do the law dean thing, I looked at various schools as the dean positions came on the market. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why I chose this region was because I felt like there was a need to educate attorneys to serve the population of students. That's why the legislature created the law school to begin with. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe that you can teach anybody, right, a particular subject, mm -hmm. but you can't really teach someone to be from somewhere. And so what we have to do is train people so that they're able to then communicate with those <clears throat> who are in their communities. And mm -hmm. I, to me, that's the only way that you can have access to justice. And so for me, that means the ability to train people who are first-generation college students, the ability to train people who were not necessarily born with a silver spoon in their mm -hmm. mouths, no one in their family, um, our attorneys, so no really any person to tell them this is the roadmap of how you make it, what you need to do to be successful. Mm -hmm. And so that for me is the type of environment and community that I wanted to be in where I actually felt like I could make a difference, um, not just in the legal academy, but really in the community and in the country in general. Oh, that is phenomenal. Uh, and that's where we're going to do the break-in for episode 67 of the WTF Carbondale podcast, where I imagine we're going to uh, bring out a, a little bit of, uh, of, of that idea of justice in this conversation as we talk to interesting people about their interesting lives and tie it all back to this little old place we call home, Carbondale, Illinois. Camille Davidson, who is new to Carbondale physically, but in terms of the place that Carbondale is, maybe maybe it's a place that you've kind of always been coming from, uh, as you were saying earlier, but before we jumped on and started recording, Oxford, Mississippi. 
Absolutely. I was born and raised in Oxford, Mississippi, which is a small college town. It's about four hours from Carbondale. I grew up as the child of educators. My mom taught high school for 42 years. My dad was a principal turned superintendent, and after he retired in Mississippi, decided to go to North Alabama to be a professor. So I was raised to uh, value education. Mm -hmm. I never, ever, ever thought that I would teach. I went to law school, right, to not be the educator, <laughs> and then, of course, came full circle mm -hmm. and became a law professor. Um, when I arrived, for my interview in Carbondale, <laughs> it reminded me a lot of home, uh -huh. right? The university town, there's the small town population of folks. Everybody knows your name. Mm -hmm. And then there's the campus community and then the need to intersect both of them. Mm -hmm. When I was in high school, I spent a lot of time on the Ole Miss campus. Mm -hmm lots of activities, lots of summer camps. I learned to swim at the campus pool, yeah. right? I went to the campus gym, went to lots of activities, but did not end up going to college there, mm -hmm. but learned a lot from that environment. And now that I'm here in Carbondale, that's sort of the energy that I'd like to have with the law school and the Carbondale community. We sit on the campus of SIUC but I don't want us to be just that lofty law school sitting at the back of the campus. Yeah. I want us to be integrated very well into the Carbondale, greater Carbondale community. So I've been out and about meeting high school principals and superintendents and various other community stakeholders, and that's been a lot of fun. And you speak their language, which I would imagine is so valuable to just understand like when you walk into a room simply by virtue of having been close to that in your household for so long that you just get a feel for what educators even though it's it's you know a, a different time now that really the the want for success of a student to not just be a student but to become a well-rounded person is still kind of the key focal point of of why educators do what they do absolutely absolutely and you have to have a passion for it and I think that's what we all agree on. And not only do I know the speak, but I have young children. So in my head, I think that keeps me young. Yeah. They may think otherwise, but I tend to think, oh, well, I have young children. So they help me continue to understand what's going on mm -hmm. with their generation. And one thing that I do know for sure is that the way that we learned, the way that education was delivered to us mm -hmm. has changed. And so we can't just keep doing it the way that it was done or the way we received it. We have to be innovative. We have to change as well and adjust and adapt to the population of students that we are now serving. I didn't realize that Oxford, Mississippi was only a four hour drive from Carbondale and old old Miss is a decently sized university, right? I mean, are, are what? It's what? about thirteen thousand, give okay. or take or so. So it's not as big as some people think it is. My parents were there in nineteen sixty four, mm -hmm. and they will tell you that at least then all of the. Uh, students of color mm -hmm. would congregate at their house. They were the young professional couple and there were so few students. So now to see that it's 13,000 give or take students yeah. and a diverse research major institution, they've seen the changes over the last 50 years. And that's another space where I'm sure there is crossover in that in that same story that, you know, coming from from segregated communities that always had all different people exist in it that you know you <laughs> you can't avoid people's want to better themselves and that eventually you're just going to have to come together in that space whether you're ready for it or not absolutely <laughs> and i i'm a little younger than people who were raised in the segregated south yeah. so i did go to desegregated schools my parents both taught in both segregated schools as well as desegregated schools in, in the state of Mississippi. And I would say that, you know, everybody just wants to do better and yeah. be better. I think we're all more alike than different. 
And once we tap into what brings us together, then we can all get on that same page and work for the greater good. And I think when we keep that greater good in focus, that's when we're all able to then shine, I think, as individuals, right? Yeah. Because when the greater good prospers, then everybody along the way is coming along and you do better when you know better is yeah. what I say. Well, and, and, I, and I like the, the greater good concept, how that ties back directly into if, if you're going to serve a greater good, you have to have a, a greater collection of folks in the mix doing that and why educating in place for folks. Because, you know, you can, like you said, you can teach the, the faculties of something, but you can't provide the context of a lived life in a space, in a place. Um, I, I got to gather my thoughts on where exactly I'm going. With, no, 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 <laughs> that's true. And, and, and I'll help you out a little there bit because <laughs> that's why diversity, equity, and inclusion is so important uh -huh. because all voices are then at the table. And if you don't have it when you're studying as a student, then it's very, very difficult to have it as an adult. Yeah. And I think that's why diverse classrooms are so important because you get that voice. You get the voice of the person who's raised in the city, the voice of the person who was raised on a farm. Mm -hmm. You get the voice of the Latinx person, the black person, the white person, the straight person, the gay person, and everything in between. And I think that's what makes a rich culture, yeah. a rich learning environment. And so we need that if we're going to take ourselves out of our discomfort into a space of being comfortable we need to be able to interact with people who don't just affirm what we believe, yeah. but people who make us a little bit uncomfortable and stretch us a little bit. Yeah. That's what we need. Well, and, and this is it, it, the, as I'm, and I was, as I'm, I, I'm making assumptions about, about what uh, your experience would be, but from an outsider's perspective of law, right? I, having no context of of what the not you know the 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 overarching judicial system of America, where we produce laws and a court system enforces them, and that has always been gate kept by a a very particular set of privileged folks in this country based on class, race, and gender, and what it is like now as a generational shift occurs where now the law system is now being being approached by everybody, not just a particular set of folks. Sure. So really, it's been in the courtroom and out of the courtroom always, mm -hmm. right? We all know that we, the people, included not most of us, right? It included white land-owning men. Yep. And we know through not just amendment to the Constitution, but we know that we all have to catch up with what the paper says. We know that Brown versus Board of Education said separate was not equal, but we know that Jim Crow was still in existence after Brown versus Brown versus Board of Education. Mm -hmm. And so it required a movement outside of the courtroom to get people, right, to a point to understand and agree with what the paper says, what mm -hmm. the law says. So I think we've always seen that. I think we are seeing it now, right? Last summer, we saw the Black Lives Matter movement after the George Floyd, and I think we're back to probably 50 years ago, right, mm -hmm. where we see not just in the courtroom, but we see also individuals in the community discussing the issues as well and figuring out how it stretches beyond the courtroom, how we as individuals uh, matter. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'll just say um, every year in May, we have Law Day, and Law Day um, is sponsored by the American Bar Association, and the whole point is to really engage um, K-12 through students, especially high school students, in the importance of a civics education. And so I think that's what we're seeing now, just the importance of basic knowledge about how the government works, your place and space in the government, why voting is important, what is the process for an election? And I think there are just a lot of people who are ill-informed about a lot of basic issues. And so we want to just make sure that we take the time to let folks know that it's not just about going to law school and knowing the law. We all grew up with Schoolhouse Rock and how a bill <laughs> becomes a law, right? We can all sing it. 
But beyond that, where and what um, is our role, right? But democracy is only as strong as the individual people who live within and protect a democracy. Yeah. And so it's important for us all to understand that. Well, and I, I appreciate the, the connection between, you know, the ideals of the citizen being the origin of the policy in a democracy, right? If you go into a into an authoritarian state, right, that is coming from a centralized, top-down interest of the one, not interest of the all position. Whereas understanding that, uh, you know, policy in in a uh, you know democratic republic like what we have is based off of what the people can organize around and move forward. So I I'm I'm picking up the breadcrumbs as we as we travel the trail of this conversation of how really the the engagement of the community ties into um, you know the the actual functional uh, efforts of of um, you know lawyering I guess do you call it lawyering I would, I would say practicing law okay. and I would say <laughs> and I would say yes that is true regardless of the area of law uh -huh. in which you practice and I will give examples using myself so my very first job was working for the Department of Education Office for Civil Rights. Mm -hmm. And that was looking at, for the most part, scholarships at public institutions. So that was my project. And that was the summer after my first year of law school. And I've never been what you would define as a civil rights attorney, but I believe that in each place and space that I've worked, I've worked on issues that affect people along the way. So I worked on Capitol Hill for six years in the Office of Legislative Counsel for the U.S. House of Representatives, where I worked um, a lot on health care issues and actually helped work on what we all know now as HIPAA. Then it really? was the kennedy Casabom mm -hmm. uh, legislation. And so when it came from the Senate to the House side, I was in the Legislative Council's office um, working on that. Um, my very first uh, work assignment, I think, at the Legislative Council's office was to name National Airport, the Reagan National Airport. So, <laughs> so that was my first assignment. My um, husband drugged me to Charlotte, North Carolina, kicking and screaming. So I was the trailing <laughs> spouse, and um, <laughs> I had to reinvent myself. So I had done a clerkship in D.C., and I had worked on Capitol Hill. So went to law school in D.C. and stayed for 10 years. So went to Georgetown. And so when I got to North Carolina, I needed to reinvent myself, so ended up doing health policy mm -hmm. for the county, working on children's health issues, as well as senior citizens' um, health issues and aging in place, mm -hmm. and then went into private practice and ultimately taking what I did on Capitol Hill and as a consultant and began an elder law estate planning practice. And so did that taught political science at Davidson College during um, lunchtime and in the mornings. And um, after that, decided, hey, I can do this teaching thing. Mm -hmm. But I didn't have a PhD, and I wasn't ready to go back to school. So I needed a law school. <laughs> do, you, do you like the classroom? Are you one of those folks? I, there, there are folks that are like, I love the classroom. And there are folks that are just like, I love the practice, and folks that are kind of in between. I love young people. Okay. I love working with young people. I love watching them grow, getting them to where they need to be. I did not mind practice. I actually liked practicing estate planning. I loved it. I did a lot of estate planning as well as estate administration. And I liked that because I dealt with families and I got to know them. Mm -hmm. And there's always a story. There's a story, front story, when you're preparing an estate plan, right? What's the family dynamic? Typically, everybody's not the same. So you get to hear about children. You get to the dynamics with respect to everything from who gets what to what about the pet. On the administration end, you see the conflict, right, yeah. a little bit from time to time. And being able to manage and deal with that conflict, I liked. I had a lot of elderly people when I was in practice practice, and I was often emotionally attached in ways that some people who practice law would say it's not healthy, mm -hmm. but for me, 
I liked getting to know people and knowing them and knowing what worked for them. And when they passed away, it was very, very sad. And I understood that they were in their 90s and that's a part of life. But it certainly was a loss because I had gotten to know them very well over a period of time. And I think for me, as an estate planning attorney, good estate planning attorneys are nosy. Mm -hmm. They ask questions <laughs> because there's not a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. And I really, really like that. And that's my most favorite class to teach as well mm -hmm. because I think it just affects everybody so much. And even if you're not practicing it, you need the information just from a practical perspective. Well, so. I think val valuing the story seems like a theme in, in that particular segment of law that could be applicable, you know, again, not just to law, but life in general. And, and you know, for, for me, you know, as a, as a person who looks at policy from a, from a non-legal standpoint, more from a, uh, you know, from a, uh, from a politico standpoint, right, my thought is that stories are what underpins policy. 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, and how that ties back into the overall function of law. And I guess that would be really, and again, correct me at any point in time when I step out of line without an understanding of, of law, but that, that precedent in, in law is really just the story of the law up to this point. That is correct. I would say that is correct. And I would also say that we have to know where we've been to know where we can go. Mm -hmm. I think we talked a little bit, little bit about that a few minutes ago. We know where we've been. We know where we started. And we know that we sometimes have to uh, push to get to where we need to be. And I think that's why it's important, again, to educate women, to educate people of color, to educate first-generation folks, and to have people there so that they can see faculty members who look like them, so that they can be exposed to people who say, you know what, you can do this. There's always a first, but you won't ever be the last, so you may be trailing the path for somebody else. Just know that there's somebody younger than you watching you, and when you make it, they're looking and nodding and saying, hey, I can do this too. And I think for me, that's one of the reasons why I like the classroom, mm -hmm. why I like being with the students. The, the practice is wonderful and fun, um, but I like being with the students so that I can nod and say, you know what, there is not this wonderful path from A to B that's so <laughs> singular and yeah. perfect. Life is a zigzag, ups and downs and circles from time to time and lots of question marks along the way, yeah. a lot. Are the uh, are your are your kids starting to pick that up now? In, in life? <laughs> sure. So I have two. I have a son and a daughter. My son graduated May eighth um, from Howard University, oh, awesome. so he thinks he's an adult now, <laughs> and so that's been fun to watch. Right mm -hmm. to watch from zero to twenty one, yeah. and and I think it went quickly. They think otherwise. My daughter just finished her freshman year at Howard. She was here in Carbondale first semester, and then she went to D.C. second semester, and now she's here for the summer. So watching them and watching how they pull apart information, they certainly challenged me. I will say they, we were in North Carolina last summer when George Floyd was murdered, and a lot of protests were taking place, and a lot of younger people were, of course, involved. And so they made sure that I was with them when we went uptown, and I thought it was important for them. They, of course, said, asked me, did you learn anything that you didn't know? My answer was no. Uh -huh. My answer was, I knew, um, but I'm glad that you now know and understand things that I have tried to share with you, mm -hmm. but now you are seeing and understanding them for yourself now, yeah. and that was important for me. Yeah, no, that, that experience and that exposure, that firsthand, you know, uh, experience. Exactly, with, uh, and, exactly. And it's, every generation has to have their own for it to properly contextualize right. you know what the what the entirety of the story is exactly <laughs> and every generation has a story right and i think before last summer before covid we thought that their generation wouldn't have a story and now they have one that probably trumps out all of our stories yeah. at this point for yeah. sure yeah. And for I mean, sure it's, it's, it's the constant it's the constant for sure, uh, for sure. the constant build
Ugh. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Our narrative, my my family narrative is an interesting one. Uh -huh. My parents and my grandparents were listed in the Mississippi Sovereignty Report when it was public uh, in the late 90s, I think was when it was public. But anyway, in the 60s, in the late 50s and early 60s, the state uh, sanctioned and followed people and so wow. I had just graduated from law school, and people went missing, right? Uh -huh, and uh -huh. so I had just graduated from law school, and one of my dad's former students wanted to interview him because the report was now public. And so we had a copy, and my dad and his brother were listed. They were in college, and so the expectation was at the time that college students may or may not have been in, in the report, but they were student members of the student nonviolence coalition and of course we're encouraging people to vote and so that's why they were targets mm -hmm. but what was more interesting was that my grandparents were also in the report and they had been interviewed their neighbors had interviewed them the government was interviewing their neighbors and the reason was because they were black and they voted mm -hmm. in the 60s and that was of course suspect and so knowing that part of my family and knowing that History also helps me uh, with my own children and with the young people that I teach on a daily basis because those are the narratives that I want to share with them and let them know that I understand um, where as a country we've been. We've come very, very far. We've come a long way in a short period of time. And I think people forget that we've come a long way in a very, very short period of time. And we sometimes get frustrated and say, oh, things aren't moving fast enough. But when we can look back and see how, how much we've done, mm -hmm. it's amazing. My, my paternal grandmother is 104. Wow. And so to know what she has lived through yeah. certainly is a source of strength. Well, and the, uh, you know, the, the understanding for folks you know, young, young people that are that are entering into this now, and understanding that this is, while the components of the system are different because people have gotten into work and change it, that it is still the same system that has committed these acts over the course of decades and centuries, and to understand that you are you are part of this same component, making it better, brick by brick, replacing. The, the, you know, if, if we're, if I'm going with the construction metaphor, I guess. Right, 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 right. And it only gets better <laughs> if we want it to get better. Yeah. And it only gets better when we as individuals make the choice and take individual steps to make things a little bit better than we found them. Sometimes it's easier said than done, right? It's easier to look over and complain and say what somebody else is or is not doing. Mm -hmm. But when we take some personal ownership to it, that's where the real change comes about. Well, and it seems like you're you're in a position right now coming into, uh, you know, our, our particular school here at, at SIU to really take ownership of uh, what this, uh, you know, what this program looks like uh, for you know the next, uh, you know, entire you know generation or two of students that, that come through just because it seems like it's in a rebuilding state right now with having retiring uh, you know professors going out and, and looking at you know the possibility of, of who comes in next and what really just I would guess the the modern environment of, of practicing law and engaging in, in policy looks like for for folks um, yeah, that wasn't really a good question. <laughs> was I, I was just trying to try to. No, no, that. no, that's <laughs> true. No, it is. It's very exciting, and I think that's the fun part of being a dean, right? I have been an associate dean for a long time, uh -huh. and one of the reasons why I wanted to be a dean was so that I could feel like the, uh, I would be able to have a vision and then begin to see that vision come to light. We have an amazing, amazing faculty. We are a small law school. But we are small but mighty, and there are so many exciting things that we are working on right now. So you may or may not know, we already have four clinics. We have a, the Veterans uh, Affairs Clinic. We have ju Juvenile Justice. 
we have domestic violence, and then we have our civil practice elder law clinic, and they are serving all over southern Illinois, the 13 southernmost counties, and not 20, 2019, 2020, I think over a thousand clients free pro bono legal services. So we are already doing some wonderful work. So we want to continue to showcase them, continue to be a part of the community and make a difference in the lives of people who cannot afford legal help. We want to make sure that people know and understand that using a lawyer, needing a lawyer is oftentimes a labor of love, that it's not always a, when I'm in trouble, I now need a lawyer, but we are being proactive and helping people know and understand their rights. So I met with local high schools. We are working on um, some collaborations. I think that's the word I want to use. Some collaborations with some local high schools to begin to uh, teach street law in the in the schools, so that our students can begin to know and understand various types of law when you rent your first apartment, mm -hmm. what does that lease look like? What yeah. does it say? Don't skip over the boilerplate. So many issues can be avoided if we just actually read mm -hmm. before we sign documents. And so getting people to know and understand that. So building that. We are also looking at a law and technology center. We'd love to oh. have that. Yeah especially in this area, being able to connect with technology mm -hmm. will allow us to serve way more people and our students will have a skill that will be with them and make them very marketable um, in the legal community. We are also looking at diversity pipelines, looking at both a high school pipeline and a college pipeline, knowing that, again, the profession needs to be representative of the community. Mm -hmm. And so that means that when we walk through our community, we see all various shades of people, different sexual orientations of people, different sexual identities of people. And so we want to put in place pipeline programs to attract both faculty and students. We had a wonderful, we have had a wonderful health law program at our school. We are the host of the National Health Law Moot Court Competition. Really? So most schools throughout the country know us because mm -hmm. they come to Carbondale <laughs> for that National Health Law Moot Court Competition. And so that is wonderful. So we will certainly continue to do that and continue to look at other paths along the health law um, phase. We have the, um, actually next week, the School of Law and School of Medicine and SIH come together to sponsor the Health Policy Institute. Mm -hmm. And so we're doing our conference virtually this year, um, and it's looking at the impact of COVID. But that's another area. So those are the, the big things that we're looking at right now. And also, really, um, as I look forward, looking at how to have a presence in other parts of Southern Illinois, whether that means a clinic somewhere else where we can serve people or an ability to offer classes in a non-traditional way. Mm -hmm. COVID taught us to do <laughs> what we didn't think was possible, right? So now we all know that we have virtual ability, right, to have classes. That makes the world a lot smaller. We actually this year had our law review symposium and had people from all over the world join us virtually. One of our faculty members did a moot court competition that covered, I believe, three continents. I wow. think the competition was in Germany, maybe, and <laughs> students were from the United States and, and maybe the continent of Africa. I'm probably misspeaking, but it was three continents yeah. and, and a competition, thanks to Zoom and our new virtual platform. So being able to hone in on that, I think, is something exciting as well. So looking forward to those. Those are the big major things that we're looking at. But again, I'm just so excited about all of the opportunity to engage the Southern Illinois community with the School of Law. Has the, has the, has moot court always been a component of uh, legal pedagogy in this, in this country? Like I, I don't, I, I, so I, I, my con, my context of a moot court is participating in, um, 
uh, what was called model Illinois government. Um, and and the, the law students had their moot court stuff, and uh, you know the, the people that, that were in political science got to do uh, the, the arguing on the House floor, and the people that were accountancy types would run their own little budget meetings, and everybody got to do their own thing. Um, and I just always thought that was real, that was real interesting how moot court kind of reflects the actualities of uh, you know, a, a, a live courtroom. Sure, so we have two things. We have moot court and we have mock trial. And moot court is appellate advocacy. So when we think of that, we think of the Supreme Court, of course, where you have counsel on each side and then you have a panel of, ju of justices, right, mm -hmm. in the appellate court. And so you're making your argument to them and they're asking the questions. Mm -hmm. You may have a formal script that you won't get through because they have many questions to, of course, ask you in between mm -hmm. each attorney. And moot court has been around for a long time. Mock trial is more recent, I would say. Mock trial is set up just like a trial courtroom with some people serving as the judges, some people serving as the witnesses, and then the attorneys. And so you actually go through the actual trial. Mm -hmm and both are a component or co-curricular activities at most law schools now. Nice, nice. That's a, I appreciate that, that context. Absolutely, absolutely. They may, absolutely. may, may not uh, know fully on, on that. And I also, you know, you're, you're, the, the types of clinics that you've talked about, uh, you know, being, being directly engaged with the, uh, with the Southern Illinois community really ties into just a lot of what, what is occurring Kind of in the in the living environment that is Southern Illinois right now, and specifically Carbondale, Jackson County is this, and, and I always kind of sell Carbondale itself as kind of the, the living laboratory component to complement the classrooms at SIU that you can sit in the classroom and learn components, but then to actually go out and experience this life with folks participating in your practice, participating in your craft, uh, and applying it there. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you said you had over a thousand clients that you were able to engage with over the past uh, over the past year. Has that has that kind of lab? I, I say laboratory. I don't <laughs> mean it like I, you know, um, um, But has has that um, has that been kind of a, a welcomed feeling? Like yes, I can accomplish what I want to accomplish in this space because there are people willing to engage the resources that we want to offer. Uh Absolutely, absolutely, and I do think that it's a win-win for both the clients and the students, right? So students are able to hone their skills, and so many students, for so many students, the law comes to life when they have a practical application. So that practical application is sometimes what turns on the light bulb, right? It's one thing to sit and read about property, read about contracts, but when you're actually doing hands-on with a real client who's got an issue with a landlord-tenant situation yeah. or something, right, then it becomes, okay, now I understand why I read what I read in the classroom. Now I can actually apply it to what's going on. So mm -hmm. I think that's important. But also really important for us is that we were founded by the legislature almost 50 years ago in the public interest to serve the public good. Mm -hmm. So that is the sole reason or you know, one of the reasons why we even exist. And so for us, it's very important for us to train lawyers who are able to hit the ground running once they graduate and pass the bar exam. And so that means that we really, really are serious about mixing practice with theory. We want you to understand the theory, but we also want you to know and understand practice. And so that becomes really important, the hands-on clinical experience, the hands-on externships. People come and ask, well, can I get done? Can I do this in two years or two and a half years? And the answer that I say is you don't want to. You want to stop. It's not a destination. Yeah. It's a journey. And you need the journey because you need the ability to have that networking, that interaction with people in the bar, people in the community to know this is what it takes to practice law. It's not just spitting out black letter law. Mm -hmm. There's emotional intelligence, if you will, that's necessary. And so when you're rushing through, you miss all of that along the way. We um, actually have more, I think, judges than any other school in the state, I think, because 
our students are graduating with that desire to serve the community and typically if that's your desire then the trajectory of course would be one of public service we have many many graduates who are state's attorneys who then of course continue and then people who practice and then later become judges so not surprising that that's where they end up because that's the person who was attracted to again the school whose mission is in the public interest yeah. to serve the public good. Right? Is that is that a is that a common theme for law schools around the country, or is this something that that is unique to SIU and you know probably not only SIU but but unique about SIU? Right, I think it's unique about SIU. Certainly not the only law school in the country with that mission, but certainly one of a core group that believe it to be very very important. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably the difference. One of the differences between a regional law school and a national law school, a regional law school is looking at a particular group of people who are more likely than not members of the region or, or are familiar with the region, right, and want to stay pretty much in the general area. And so we want to make sure that they are nurtured and cultivated so they are able to seamlessly enter into the legal community. I think that's the difference between um, somewhere like a national school where people are coming from everywhere, right? And so you're not really focused on, most of our students, I would say, take the Illinois and the Missouri bar exam. So mm -hmm. those two combined are where most of our students are going. And then there's a contingency, you know, then scattered around. Um, we have Kentucky, Indiana, Iowa, Wisconsin, and of course, Tennessee. So that's primarily our population of students so but still within that three to four hour radius in any direction not not too far off well right. and, you know, it, it makes sense uh, you know especially understanding that you know in Illinois uh, we have you know the third largest metro area in the country it's there there is even though we may be down here in southern Illinois the action throughout the entirety of Illinois just based on being a major population center in the country makes it a, a viable path to pursue and, and, you know, work a trajectory upwards and, and through the Illinois legal system to wherever somebody may want to take their step if they decide to broaden their scope nationally with law. Absolutely, absolutely. And I do believe that is why we can find SIU law graduates pretty much anywhere <laughs> at this point, right? Yeah. So for that very, very reason. What is, what is it like to you know, for for students to to utilize the existing law school network to get themselves into um, the the actual activity of uh, you know practicing law? You know, I mean, you you look at folks and uh, you know Harvard's like right the the prime example of I went to Harvard Law and this is the network that I'm plugged into and because sure. of that it, it goes here. But you know it's it's just as applicable um, in a space like SIU where that network is is a value back to uh, the student. It uh, is, and we actually start the network at admissions, not before people arrive. Mm -hmm. So we have students who are interested in SIU and they may say, I'm interested in practicing in X subject area or I'm interested in living in X area. And at that point in time, our admissions director will hook them up with an alum who has either practiced in that area or you know, done that particular type of law so mm -hmm. that they can actually have a conversation. So we've had prospective students say, wow, I'm really surprised that you're able to hook me up right now and give me the name of an individual who can talk to me. And that's the beauty of a small school, right? We have yeah. about 4,000, give or take a few hundred alums, mm -hmm. but the community is very, very close-knit. So what I've started to do is go through sort of the rosters, right? I started with the <laughs> inaugural class, so uh -huh. that's the class of 76, and have worked my way through 76 and 77, uh -huh. contacting people and 
doing Zoom calls, and now I'm actually asking for, can we meet in person? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit over Zoom, Zoom sessions now. But that's the beauty of that, because when I contact one, they'll connect me with somebody else, mm -hmm. and they all have said, and I am willing to do ABC. So they come back, and they serve as judges for our competitions. They're speakers. They're donors. They hire our students for externships, they mm -hmm. hire our students for permanent jobs, so they are well connected. And I haven't gotten a no yet, so I don't have any wood to knock wood, but <laughs> everybody has, I don't know if that's the, she's the new dean, so we're gonna say yes because right. we want it to work right. <laughs> but I haven't had anyone say no at this point, so everyone has said to me, I want this to continue to be a great place. People are telling me the wonderful stories about their time in law school. And that's just been amazing to hear. The the current, actually the current Illinois um, State Bar Association president is an alum. So he's hey. about to end his hey. term. So we're going <laughs> to celebrate him next week. Uh -huh. And uh, we have just alum alums everywhere, all over. And again, just excited and ready to help our students and ready to engage in any way that they can so it, and it's so it's funny to me to, to hear you talk about you know going back to the the initial roster from the 70s and working your way up it makes me think of uh, a, a particular story one, one of my business mentors uh, steve owns quattro's pizza up the up the street here there's a there's a photo from like the early 80s 82 84 something like that of just the the whole restaurant staff hanging off the ceiling and just having fun <laughs> for their christmas party picture and i'd sit down with steve and 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 gone through this photo a, a time or two before and there's two or three people that he'll point out in the photo and be like well this person's a judge now and this person's a you know a, a this lawyer that person's a judge too and it's like making that connection that guess what right you're you're here and you're working retail or you're or you're pounding out pizzas or you're you know you're selling cell phones or whatever you're doing in your time now working through school and 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 these things but that they that the story that's there with you is very similar to the story that was there 30 or 40 years ago with the people that preceded you in the same exact space. Absolutely. And I will say this, the people, the alums are so excited to help and, and find a place and space in the law school that we actually created one of the things I created this, this year, the dogs groups, the deeds advisory working groups. Dogs. So <laughs> ah, I yes. try, I try sometimes, right? I love it. And I so it. <laughs> in various areas, because I was trying to figure out, well, I've got people who want to help and I need some structure around it, right? Yeah. And so created the groups in various categories. So, and then I'm able to say, well, what would you like to do, right? Admissions fundraising, mm -hmm. judging, speaking in classrooms, what is it that you'd like to do so that now we've got the working groups in mm -hmm. place and people can sign up. Well, I'm sure they're so just as happy to, to not have had, uh, oh, you mean I can do something that's not just write a check? I can just give you my Well, time? I like the checks too, Absolutely. so you know no, what? Feel wrong. free to no. write a check anytime, any day. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> is that For another sure. thing that comes natural to you in this? Have you have you kind of had the the exposure to the fundraising and the, uh, and the development aspects that also help you be a good fit for a dean position? You know what's so funny is as an estate planning attorney, oh, yeah. I was always called upon by various organizations uh -huh. to give the talk, right? Uh -huh. To talk about how and why you should donate to places mm -hmm. that you love, whether it's your school, a church, an organization. So very, very comfortable with that. But this is the first time that I've actually had to go out and figure out how to cultivate individual mm -hmm. donors and also looking at things like grants, how to find companies that will donate to schools mm -hmm. and for what purposes. So that's definitely been um, a learning curve for yeah. me, without a doubt, without a doubt. I am comfortable connecting with people. The asking for money is not natural. Yeah. I don't think that's, I don't know very many people that that is natural it's, for. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I'm certainly comfortable with meeting people and having wonderful conversations with people and hearing stories and 
hoping that they eventually lead to some long-term commitment in yeah. some sort of way. We have um, historically had some wonderful donors, though. It, here in town, there are some alums who have been just some amazing donors, and we have some signature events that are donor-sponsored events, and mm -hmm. so those have been well attended during COVID. Everything shifted to virtual, but we had amazing attendance at those events this year. Wow, that's cool. Well, and I, and I, I would imagine, you know, I, I, I love the, the, the connection between uh, you know the the donor component and the estate planning because I mean you're I I, uh, I would imagine that that part of that role was not just explaining but gatekeeping on what is and isn't valid to your client's interest because ultimately you're not just saying hey go out and give money to whatever because you've got it you're saying what is your passion what is the legacy that you want to have in place absolutely and it's also to regular people like me who do, i don't have millions of dollars yeah. in the bank but letting them know that there are many many ways that we can leave a legacy right whether it's through a life insurance policy or something else that there are ways for us to leave a legacy when we don't are not sitting with millions of dollars right no, that is that is that is the trick. Like it doesn't, you know, just pick pick your lane and kind of work work through it, and that'll be what uh, what you can leave behind. The so making for sure a, for sure <laughs> ma ma making a hard transition uh, away transitioning from transitioning from the money, right? Do what? <laughs> I said we're transitioning from the money, right? <laughs> well, well, the, well, no, the 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 thought in my head uh, on that one then then became a a the the. A, a laughable component about around legacy because our introduction at the uh, at the chamber event here a couple months back and uh, you know and, and uh, talking about the the group in WTF Carbondale and I was kind of taken aback when you were like oh I've spent a little time in the group and my <laughs> students told me to just relax a little bit <laughs> on the on the participation there but that was that was interesting to me uh, just to just how how. Um, you know, the digital spaces that, that I work to curate really do have uh, kind of an outreach to anybody that's that's coming in town at any at any level of, of participation in, in uh, uh, you know, just in uh, in the, the greater Carbondale community as a whole. I think that's very, very true. And I think that we really, really need to be deliberate about using social media, digital platforms. Yeah when we advertise to students, when we market ourselves, as we brand ourselves, because our students are on social media and yeah. digital platforms every day. I don't even know whether or not they actually listen to traditional news anymore. Yeah. So they are getting what they know from those digital platforms. And so again, we talked a little bit earlier about meeting people where they are, mm -hmm. but that's a situation where we have to meet people where they are. Now, for me personally, I probably am on digital platforms more than I should be. I probably need a code name when I'm commenting on WTF, right? I probably do need a code name other than my own so that people don't say, hey, the dean commented. Uh, but <laughs> it is what it is. I, I certainly do believe in being authentic and transparent. And so I do want my students to know that I am not stuffy and stuck up and yeah. all of those things. And so I, I think it's important to be able to navigate in many different settings, whether it's the boardroom or with students or in the park or wherever, we have to be able to navigate in many different places and spaces. So well, that's and that's that's what drew me to this conversation. Uh, you know, when, when we first met uh, again, shucks, maybe it's been two months or, or so now because I you just the vibe was there. I was just like, <laughs> she's just a regular old person, right? Just and a that, regular and that person is, <laughs> that is spread throughout the entirety of SIU. John Pollitz, who is who is a yeah. dean over over library services, uh, was episode like seventeen or eighteen of the podcast, something like that. Very authentic, just regular, old approachable person. Um, Terry uh, Clark, who is the the dean over the business school, exactly. he's my neighbor. I've known Terry since they moved to town when I would have been in fifth grade. I was the same age uh, as his son John. Just a very authentic person. Absolutely, and he's got some cool stories, doesn't oh he? For sure, for sure, for sure. <laughs> but but I told him I'm the one who has actually seen Elvis and Princess Diana in person oh when they were both alive. You would think he would be the one, uh -huh. right? But um, yeah, yeah, so. Elvis has actually been through Carbondale before. Um, I'm 
fishing around for that video right now. I may be able to find it in the cache of a lot of other things, which, which would be really cool. But that like, would be cool. That's Very another cool. thing just about Carbondale in general. I, I think back to just uh, several years ago when, when uh, Ban Ki-moon came through um, because he wanted to visit uh, in his last a uh, couple of months uh, with the with the United Nations, uh, serving as um, oh my gosh, I can't remember what the what the title was. It's something general, but um, I'm just gonna move on because I don't have that knowledge base. <laughs> the, but he was like, I wanted to visit a a a school that that felt like it was tied to uh, the land of of Lincoln. That was this place that represents America on this larger than life you know international scale. That right. when you think about America that one of the components that you may think about is Abraham Lincoln in Illinois. And so you thought, Oh, I'm going to go to little old SIU to get that experience. And it's like, all right, cool. <laughs> very, very cool. And the, and the university has an amazing history, right? Yeah. From the very beginning. So very cool to read about it. Yep. Yep. No. And I, I just keep, that's, that's another part of these conversations and, and some of the guests that I'm able to, to pick up is uh, folks that, that really share that, that institutional knowledge of what the past hundred years has looked like, or really since about the mid 1940s has looked like with the development of, of the school from this, you know, very, very rudimentary, uh, you know, teaching school to the robust, uh, interdisciplinary organization that it is now uh, and just what that has what that has put us at the crossroads of in so many different ways for so many different people right we're it's there aren't a whole lot of places that in rural America I should say that that people like John F. Kennedy and Barack Obama and Donald Trump have all been through at some point in time in right, their lives right 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 <laughs> I was quickly informed that <clears throat> Barack Obama had Use the bathroom in the in the deed suite, right? <laughs> so, so that's true. That's true. You're right. You're exactly right. It's it's amazing. It is amazing. The um, there every everybody that's in kind of politics and has been in, in politics in Southern Illinois for for at least twenty uh, plus years. Everybody's got their Barack Obama story. Right, there are some right, people right. that have made it into books, whether <laughs> they've been directly quoted or not. Professor um, Simon, you know, is yeah. mentioned in the, in the new book. Right. Right. So, I've, and I've got, uh, I've got Sheila on, on my list of, of, of folks, uh, professor Simon, sorry, I'll, I'll keep titles <laughs> on this conversation. I'm really bad about titles. I'm really good about just like, common I am names. too. I, I'm I, very I, bad about titles <laughs> for sure. For sure. I always feel bad when I'm like, you know, I'm talking to someone who's like, should I be saying doctor right now? And every time that I address them or should it just be, you, you know, know, so-and-so exactly. But my parents <laughs> named me Camille. So I I answer to it every, every time. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, that's phenomenal. But no, I I I've, I've talked to her um about uh, uh about being part of, of a of a broader uh, Paul Simon uh, piece that uh, that I'll do with the institute uh, at some point, hopefully in the in the coming months as as things come together. And it's just the again how this is very real in little old Southern Illinois. Uh, you drive down from, from here to Cape Girardeau and on the side of the road, very unassuming uh, on, on a little rural route road is just a, a space plaqued as one of the places of a Lincoln Douglas debate. And it's like, that's, that exists. Right. That exists here. Right. Um, yeah. It's just, it's neat. I like, I like the story part, which is, which is what this kind of goes into, right? I'm, I'm looking to archive a, a mix of things. What is our past? What are we in the midst of right now in our present? What does the future look like? And I really appreciate you being here uh, to just kind of speak on kind of the present that you're experiencing and helping to build the future out. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's see. I've got like a minute and a half to fill up before the hour hits. <laughs> like I'm, I'm always like trying to get right there with, uh, with, with where I land at. Um, the, the, the kind of last thing that I'll, that I'll touch on just because it's a, it's a struggle in this space and it's something that you're, you've experienced, uh, you know, uh, directly that we were talking about before the show, uh, of wanting to come here for your own personal pursuits, but then having to work to find a space for, uh, your partner along the way. And my thought would be, you know, hey, if he drug you to Carolina, <laughs> uh, that uh, it's time for a little bit of payback on that. And it's time to <laughs> drag him on this way and he'll find it as he comes along. 
Um, but I mean, that's that's part of the struggle of relocating to a, to a rural space like this, that there may be one opportunity for yourself, but not an opportunity for, for a partner in turn. Uh, and just kind of how you've been able to, uh, to approach that over the, over the year that you've been here uh, and what, what that's been like. Sure. I'm not sure that I have the answer. This year has not been a normal year, right? It's been a COVID year. So <laughs> that I think maybe now I'm in the let's see what happens year right, because right. COVID year was a year of Zoom and not seeing people and the inability to get out and connect with the community. And so that's really what I'm looking forward to now so i'm gonna say july 1 2021 is really day one <laughs> the start day instead of last year because th it feels a little more normal uh -huh. at this point for lack of a better word the event that we actually met at was the first event that i had actually been out to see real people and i was <laughs> so excited we were outside and i thought wow real people not behind a zoom screen this is so much fun right. and i was so energized that afternoon so i am indeed looking forward to that as i move into year two oh, that's excited good. about all that awaits all that's out there the um do you do the well i mean you, you said your daughter is is so did she she started with with SIU for a little bit and then transition to Howard. Will she be going back to Howard as well in the in the fall? Yeah, she actually was remote Howard okay. here in the fall. And then they were remote all year, but we allowed her to go just so that she could meet some people her own age and who were in school. It was a difficult transition only because she moved to a new place. This was the, she was in that group of students who went to spring break, yeah. right? And COVID hit. <laughs> And, and that was it. Life as they knew it, right? So they never really connected with their classes again, mm -hmm. right? The spring break ended, Zoom for the rest of the year, virtual graduation, a summer of question marks. The fall semester was remote, and so we thought that it would just be nice for her to go to D.C. So she had a good, a good experience. Nice. Um, in the spring, and so I, I chuckled and said, welcome home. I don't know that she's quite ready to say welcome home yet she said welcome to carbondale yeah. right um i said okay okay well I'll, I'll take it however you give it to me uh, so but it's been it's been good we it's will I, good. I will i will do whatever i can to to introduce her to whatever other components of carbondale she needs to at least for the time being live sanely as as absolutely for, for, for a while she's here and then for your for your son does he have an idea of kind of where he's going next or is he gravitated he towards... is he's staying in dc okay. he's staying in dc he majored in biology and community health so his externship actually turned into a full-time job so That's he great. is gainfully employed Ah, congratulations on being a parent to gainfully employed children I'm right excited, out of college. I'm excited, Ray. I don't know if that means truly off of mom's and dad's payroll. I don't know, but gainfully employed is a plus for sure. For uh, once, sure. once they start figuring out how all of that student debt fits into uh, the rest of the cost of rent and bills right. and all the other exactly. things. That's you, exactly. That's exactly. And there's nothing to being a grown-up except paying bills anyway, right? That's it. That's it. I, well, and for I, it's it's so it's so wild for me at at 31 to be kind of learning that. That turns out there was never such a thing as being an adult to begin with. You're simply that person that you were with more bills to pay. Better go hustle some money out That's of somewhere it. to That's make it That's exactly work. right. That's exactly it. It's sort of the Wizard of Oz, and now you're here, and well, is yep. this it? Is that all there is to it? More bills, for sure. For well, sure. and I, I always appreciate having the opportunity to just talk a little bit about parentage uh, with folks on the on the podcast because I'm I'm trying to build this cache myself of things that I can reference back to as my kids grow into the ages that uh, you know your kids are now and go okay well it turns out between 10 and 21 it moves real fast <laughs> yeah it moves really fast all of it moves really fast and really slow at the same time yeah. which seems weird and odd to say but i think that's the case when i say that i have an 18 year old and a 21 year old i can't believe it because 
1990 feels like yesterday to me and will forever <laughs> be 10 years ago. Uh-huh. And so I really can't believe that, wow, these people, these young people were born well after 1990 uh-huh. and they are now adults. <laughs> that just amazes me and surprises me because I think I'm relatively young, right. and I guess I'm not. And so I'm not sure that I'm ready to realize that I'm as old as the calendar says that I am. Well, but I mean, but sure. when you when you surround yourself on a regular basis with people who still you know have have a youthful exuberance about them that you just yourself carry that youthful exuberance into the conversation just the same, and you're able to build onto that character both sides of of where you're at and where your students are at just the same. That's true. That's very, very true. That's very true. And that's why it's so much fun to be with students. Yeah. And, and that was, and, oh, and I'm sure I'm like talking all over the place as well. No, you're But good. that was the hard part too about coming in during COVID because the students weren't in the building. Mm-hmm. And so the inability to feel the energy that they bring when you walk down the hallway, when there's pizza going on and whatever going on. Mm -hmm. That was the hard part. And I'm so excited that we are going to be able to do that in the fall. It will be a world of difference, I think. Yeah. Yep. No, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for you. I'm excited for it. And I hope that uh, this little podcast, while while it may not make the world of difference stand alone, <laughs> uh, commits as one piece to the to the world of difference that we're building uh, here and, and now in little old Carbondale. Uh, episode 67, uh, Camille Davidson, uh, the dean of the SIU School of Law. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, to the folks out there, have a good one, whatever that one may be. Thank you.